This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Kia noho a iwakia koutou. The Lord be with you all. And a warm welcome to this uh, radio church service on Sunday the 12th of September. My name is uh, the Reverend Dr. Jordan Redding. I'm one of the chaplains at the University of Otago and uh, the Associate Minister at Knox Church Otipoti Dunedin in the centre of town. It's an honour to be uh, conducting a short service uh, in Level 2. I hope wherever you are that you are well. So one of the uh, images for the church, one of the ancient images for the church is of a sailboat. And I reflected a couple of weeks ago at Knox Church of why the images of a sailboat and not a rowboat. It's because with a rowboat, you need to do all the work yourself to get somewhere. But with a sailboat, you open up your sails and the Spirit of God, the wind of God blows and leads the church somewhere. It is the Spirit of God who does the work, not the people of God. I want to push that image a little bit further uh, today in this radio service. And that is because we're going to hear a reading shortly from uh, the book of James, the, the epistle of James, where James talks about the tongue, the human tongue, as a rudder. The rudder of a boat. A rudder is obviously, along with the sail, one of the most important parts of the boat. You need the rudder to steer. And without the rudder, the boat would be at the mercy of the wind and the waves. Even with the power of the wind, you still need the rudder to stare into uh, certain waves or to work around rocks, to dodge Skylar and Charybdis and whatever other obstacles are in your way. The rudder is so small, James says, and yet it exerts a huge influence. You know, if you went up from, uh, sailed through Dunedin Harbour and went straight up north with your rudder straight, you'd end up probably around Christchurch. But if you turned your rudder just a fraction and went off in a different direction, you'd end up probably somewhere in the Cook Islands, uh, maybe New Caledonia, and you turn your rudder just a little bit more, a fraction more, And you end up missing the Pacific Islands in New Zealand altogether, halfway across the world in Mexico. All because of a tiny turn of the rudder, the boat changes course and ends up hundreds of kilometres away from where it was originally going. And James says our tongue is like a rudder. Our words exhibit a similar power over who we are, how we see the world, how we relate to others, our community, our life together. Our words are important. And so today I'm going to be reflecting on the power of words. But we begin, of course, with a prayer, which is a way of using our words to orient them towards God. Worship and prayer is a way of orienting our language to God, to God in praise and thanksgiving and to others in love. Worship and prayer is about learning to speak rightly as God would have us speak. And so it's appropriate that we begin using our words with thanks and praise to God. 
just before we pray, uh, there's a song which we're going to play. This is called In You We Live, and it is performed by the Flagstaff Community Choir, written by Sue Mepham, who attends Flagstaff Community Church. I hope you enjoy it. In times gone past, we tread the ancient pathway leading to the eternal one. With a multitude, we join in worship, voices raised in joyful song. In you.
that was In You We Live, performed by the Flagstaff Community Choir and written by Sue Mepham. And so we come to pray. Let us pray. God of the vast ocean expanse, though we're sailing far from the shore, we know that you are always with us. Yours is the ocean current that carries us, and yours is the breeze that powers us. Yours is the seabird who comforts and guides us, and yours are the fish that feed us on the way. You are the home we come from, and the destination we're going to. In you we live and move and have our being, and so we give you thanks and praise. In prayer, we lift our eyes to the horizon, looking to the risen Jesus, that brightest of stars, by whose light we find our way. Like the rudder steers the ship, may our words of praise and confession orient us in mind, heart, body and soul to the one who is our life. With Peter, we confess that Jesus is the Christ your anointed one, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who leads us into newness of life with you. He is our navigation point, ever present before us, ever shaping our life. Yet, like Peter, we do not understand what our confession means. We cannot fully grasp what it means to follow the Christ whose judgment is suffering love. Even our best attempts steer the ship off course. Our words fail to honour you and fail to honour one another, and we are sorry. And we pray, blow, spirit, blow. Fill our sails and turn us once more to Christ. May his words become our words, his way our way, his life our life, as we speed towards the coming shore, where we will one day know the fullness of peace in your welcoming embrace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Inexplicably, Jesus chooses Peter. Peter is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Peter who is the doubter. Peter who, more often than not, doesn't understand. Peter the rebuker. Peter the abandoner. Perfection or certainty, it seems, are no prerequisites for being called by Jesus. And so with confidence... We hear the good news. Etafano Atkaraiti, family of Christ. We are called, we are loved, we belong. Not because we earn it, but because Jesus welcomes us. We are forgiven. Thanks be to God. So we come to our Bible readings. Our first reading is from the book of James, as I've already mentioned. James chapter 3. And then we'll continue with a gospel reading from Mark chapter 8, almost the halfway point in Mark's gospel. And so firstly, from James chapter 3. 
Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. And a reading from Mark chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father 
with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, the rudder. We're told our tongue is like a rudder. So small and yet with such remarkable ability to steer the whole body in a new direction. Our tongue, James says, has power exercising influence far beyond its size. One conversation, one speech, one phrase, one word can have far-reaching consequences, changing the course of relationships, communities, societies, even changing the course of history. What James wrote almost 2,000 years ago is still demonstrably true today. Think of phrases like, they are us, or team of five million. Positive examples of the power of words, ordinary words, and yet in the right time, in the right context, they had a profoundly unifying effect on our country during uncertainty. But we also see the harm that words can cause. The power of words to spread misinformation or disinformation. Words that give voice to radical ideologies, bigotry, discrimination and hate. And we're well aware of the potential for greater harm today through the amplifying effect of social media and the internet where there are few filters for harmful words or ideas. Or rather, there are filters, algorithms, but the filters that are there actually can often spread virulent ideas faster, directing them down avenues where they can thrive, where there are few obstacles in the way. James is right that our tongue, or we might add today that our Fingertips typing on a keyboard are like a small fire that can set ablaze a whole forest. Except in today's climate of social media and the internet, the forests are drier, the temperatures are higher, and the water for dousing the flames can be harder to find. There's even more at stake than there was in James's day. We're all too aware that words can have harmful consequences. And so it's no surprise, I think, that many public debates recently in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have centred on the issue of freedom of expression, free speech, and what limits should be placed on it. The individual right to free speech is vitally important for a liberal democracy where ideas can be robustly discussed and everyone, regardless of creed, culture, ethnicity, orientation, ability, gender, has an equal voice around the table. But we also know it's not that simple, don't we? That some voices are louder than others, that some cultures or perspectives or worldviews are more dominant than others. That some languages are spoken over others. 
And we certainly know that the popular opinion isn't always the right opinion. I wonder what James might say to the church today as we navigate these complex waters, dodging Schuyler on the one hand and Charybdis on the other. The whole modern idea of human rights, while it's arisen out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, would have been a foreign concept to the biblical authors. And so James's primary concern is not with our right to say whatever we want. That's not language that James would have used. His primary concern is with the consequences of our words. For those of us who bless God made known in Jesus, James says we have a responsibility to use our words similarly to bless our fellow human beings. Why? Because each and every one of us is made in the likeness of the God we worship. The individual right to free speech, in other words, is not an absolute right, defended at all costs and abstracted and removed from their real-world consequences. James would say, the consequences matter. I'm reminded of a movie I watched recently called Collateral. Tom Cruise is playing a nihilistic hitman with an awful haircut. At one point, he shoots someone dead and the person he shot falls from a building and crashes on the ground. Jamie Foxx, who's also in the movie, accuses Tom Cruise's character of killing the man. And Tom Cruise responds, No, I didn't kill him. I shot him. The bullets in the fall killed him. True enough. And yet, we might see why that reasoning is problematic. Just because I can say something doesn't mean I should. If I light a fire in the height of summer in a bone-dry forest, I shouldn't be surprised if I start an uncontrollable blaze, even if that was never my intention. If I shoot a gun at someone, I shouldn't be surprised if they end up wounded, even dead. Reverend Dr. Matthew Jack, the minister at Knox Church in Ōtautahi Christchurch, said a few years ago that we do not speak into some vague space of unanswerability. Rather, we speak into a space of responsibility and consequence. Matthew's comments, I think, resonate with what James is saying. We could say that our speech is for something. Our speech is for relationship, for blessing God and for blessing each other who is made in the image of God. Psalm 19, the lectionary psalm for this Sunday, even talks about the whole creation, the birds and the bees and the plants and the ocean, pouring out wordless praise to God. Speech is God's gift to enable relationship. 
God's relationship with us and God's creation and our relationship with God and with the earth around us. And consequently, we are called to go beyond simply asserting our right to freedom of expression. We are encouraged, rather, to take a step further and ask what the effect of our words might be. And this is a far more complex conversation and actually requires others being in the room with us to talk about what the effects of our words might be. All this is made more complex by the fact that even when we have the best of intentions, we can still get it horribly wrong. And James acknowledges as much when he says, we all make mistakes. No one is perfect. In one breath, we can praise God, and in the next breath, we can curse one another. Our reading concludes with a rather uneasy comparison. James asks, Can a spring pour fresh water and salt water at the same time? Well, obviously no. In fact, the salt water will make the fresh water salty. The implication, I think, is that all our words have become salty. All our relating to one another, even with the best of intentions, fails in some way to live up to God's intentions for our life together. The water has become brackish and salty. We're not able to love God and to love one another as God intends, as God loves us. We fall short. We are inarticulate. Our words are inadequate. We say things we shouldn't. We don't say things we should. Perhaps precisely because our speech is a gift for relating to one another in love, it carries at the same time such raw capacity for distortion and harm. Through our words we love, and yet we fail to love. Take a look at Peter in our Gospel reading. In one moment he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Saviour of God. He gets it so right, and yet in the next moment he reveals his utter ignorance and inability to understand what that means. He gets it so wrong, so that Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, tempter. I've no doubt Peter had the best of intentions. He wanted to keep his friend Jesus safe from harm, and yet he totally missed the mark. Interestingly, this passage is the turning point of Mark's gospel, smack bang in the middle. From this point on, Jesus makes his way to the cross. It seems significant to me that this episode is the turning point falling in the middle of the gospel. In this one event of Peter's confession, we hear... Peter's remarkable confession of the truth and his inability to confess the truth. He is at once so right and so wrong, and he is just like you and just like me. Like him, we stand in the middle of the story on the way. Like him, we are an impossible contradiction, at once pointing to the truth with our words, and at the same time completely missing the mark. We confess and 
yet we utterly fail to confess. We believe, and yet we are people of unbelief. We love, and we fail to love. It's what we articulate every week in worship. We place ourselves alongside Peter on the way with Jesus, with the cross before us. And we offer there in worship our confession. We orient our words, our actions, our life together once more towards Jesus, the crucified Christ, to hear his words and to allow our words to be shaped by him. Worship, prayer, is about the reorientation of our speech, setting the rudder straight, not simply asserting our right to talk, but learning to talk rightly. There is a close connection between our speech towards God and our speech towards each other. We see that in Jesus, how the two can't be separated, the one who is true God and true man. A concluding thought. And that is that in prayer and worship, we're not only learning to talk rightly, we're also learning to be silent. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. A skill many of us could take on board. The way of the cross is the way of the one who stands judged by the powers of the world. The way of the one who was silent before the high priest. The way of the one who knows that at times it's better not to speak if communion and fellowship is not possible. The way of the one who does not defend himself, but goes willingly to the cross. Jesus is a challenge for the church. As important as it is for us to speak up for justice, truth and peace, I can't help but wonder at times if the church could learn from the silence of Christ. The times when Peter would do better to watch and to listen rather than speak. When truth is better articulated with silent solidarity than with aggressive rhetoric. It seems to me that many of our recent debates in the church and in the public square are not so much genuine conversations as shouting matches. We talk past each other, we insult each other, and we refuse to listen to each other. James, I think, would encourage us to discern where and when to light our matches, as it were so that we can actually sit around the campfire and talk, rather than be engulfed by an uncontrollable blaze. When the landscape is a bone-dry tinderbox, we might do well to put the matches away. Amen. And so a song about our words being converted this is a song called Kurie, and it was composed uh, by myself back in 2013. I hope you enjoy it.
So we come to our uh, closing prayer for the world and a closing blessing. And our prayers for the world are going to look a bit different today. They pick up Jesus' words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll finish with a short period of silence. And so we pray. In the dark night of the soul, we pray with Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Standing with those abandoned, abused, betrayed, we pray with Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken them? Protesting against bigotry, division and hatred, we pray with Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Acknowledging the crying out of Mother Earth and the sky above, we pray with Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken your world? We voice our lament in the name of Jesus, the crucified one. His silence is our silence. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who death could not defeat. Amen. And a blessing. May the God who shakes heaven and earth, whom death could not contain, who lives to disturb and heal us, bless you with power to go forth and in turn to speak words of blessing to those you meet along the way. Me te aroha o te atua, me te fifingatahitanga ki te wairu etapu. Ake, ake, ake. Amine. Go in peace. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.